when I think about diversity, it's about building teams that reflect society, you know, all its intersectionality, that's sexuality, that's, you know, that's your ethnicity, that's neurodiversity, that's everything. But we need to build teams that reflect society. Otherwise, we're just building products for ourselves, right? It's just mirror image of ourselves. Welcome to Hypercurious, a show that is all about finding happiness by embracing changes and following our curiosity. My name is Beta Luca. I'm a BAFTA-winning serial entrepreneur, angel investor, and multi-hyphenate. Each week, I unveil the most intriguing aha moments and leaps of learnings of successful leaders, founders, authors, and artists, and how they achieve incredible things by staying hypercurious. Today, I'm talking to an incredible human, diversity advocate, and the Sunday Times Top 100 Disruptive Entrepreneur. Pip Jamison is the founder of The Dots, the professional network of the future loved by creatives and dubbed by Forbes as the next LinkedIn. That's super cool, isn't it? In this episode, you learn how to create a platform that is optimized for kindness and happiness, not vanity likes. The future of work when people embrace fluid careers and make money from their passions. And the incredible superpowers of being dyslexic. Pip, a very warm welcome to the show. I'd love for people who are listening to us to learn about your essence. Who is Pip Jamison in one sentence? Oh my gosh, I'm dyslexic, so trying to be articulate is really hard. Who is Pip Davison? I'm a founder, CEO, non-tech founder, CEO, and I've put social purpose and values at the heart of the business and tech business I'm building. Um, I love how I frame that all about work. That's terrible. I also have a dog, live on a houseboat, and have a wonderful husband. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Oh, that's such a good moment to live in a houseboat nowadays, right? You're totally connected to nature when, you know, we're all in our little apartments nowadays. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. I mean, I don't have a garden, obviously, but like just above your head is the canal. And then we've got like the towpath's been lovely for like social distance walks. And I've got a little rowboat. That, um, so my boat's called Horace and the, the rowboat's called Little Horace. So I can like go for a row and just road to the supermarket and come back again and it's it's been it's been magical to be honest oh that's good see yeah we're not only about work that's nice <laughs> uh so i'm gonna talk about work a little bit now so you are indeed uh amazing you know entrepreneur and disruptive creative dynamic that's how i see you and you've built uh, a business called the dots uh from scratch to more than half a million users and clients like google channel 4 so house but before we go there to talk about the dots i'm super curious about your career and the turns that you took right you started working politics and then you even went to australia to work at mtv how does this journey happen? How does one go from politics to the forefront of the music business? Oh, yeah. I feel like I've had like multiple careers, I guess. You know, for me, 
It's so funny. That's my dog. It's all right, Pie Pie. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, my dog's called Pie. So yeah, I feel like I've sort of had multiple careers. So I studied maths and economics at university. And the the interesting thing about my career is my my dad was actually in the creative industries. And so there was always this expectation, I guess, that I'd go and do something creative. My way of being like a rebel was I was like, okay, I'm actually going to go off and do maths and economics. And when I left, I've always wanted to have a purpose-driven career. So um, when I left university, most of my friends were going off to the city and it just wasn't for me. So I thought the best way I could have an impact was to join the Fast Dream Civil Service. So um, I was working in Economist and primarily for the Home Office for David Blunkett. And Government was all right, but it was very slow paced, very bureaucratic. And I thought, you know, it's going to take me like 30 years to have any sort of impact. So then I jumped ship into the creative industries and I was working for various roles around the world. But I think what was interesting is I was good at that job and I was getting paid for it and I was having fun, but it didn't really have much purpose and meaning. And that was when I then kind of started moving into tech and just that sort of really exciting time when you're like, you know, you. I always see problems in the world and I want to fix them. So, you know, for me, like tech was a great career. A bit of a challenge because I don't have a computer science degree. I'm a non-tech founder who's now started two tech businesses. So I started my first tech business in Australia and then um, subsequently the dots over here. So, yeah, I feel like I've had sort of multiple life but now I feel like I've found my and they call it itiyagi or ikiyagi I don't know it's that Japanese philosophy where you career happiness comes from when you combine what you're good at uh, what you get paid for what you enjoy but also what the world needs and I feel like I've, I've got to that point now it's taken me a long time but I got to that point <laughs> after many lives you found the one <laughs> I love that. And you, how, how was it for you to leave a large corporation and fun corporations, the MTV, right, to, to go and, and start The Loop, which was your, fir- your first business? Yeah, I think there were two things happened simultaneously. So firstly, like MTV at the time was the cutting edge of youth culture. Um, you know, it was a while ago now. It's, it's very different now. But Back then, I was actually getting quite old in MTV years. So, you know, I was I was coming up to like my 30s and I, I've always believed on leaving things on a high and I'd, I'd done some amazing projects with them. So I was starting to think about that next move. And what I loved about what, working for MTV is it was corporate and I learned so much from that. But at the same time, they were very good at taking chances on people that were very young you know I was getting promoted every year I was taking on kind of I guess what you call c-suite roles in my 20s but yeah I wanted that next move and then simultaneously I just saw a real world problem and I wanted to create a solution and you know that solution was tech-based and so it was somewhat like naive I was just like yeah I can build a platform that does this but with naivety, I think sometimes comes innovation because you just think completely differently. And um, yeah, I just sort of made that jump and went through all the crazy highs and lows of starting a business and then took all those learnings and then came and started my second one over here. So true. And so, so many times we are afraid of doing this and, you know, the experimentation can lead you to, to many different places that you have no clue about. So your, your second business, uh, The Dots, uh, which you started seven years ago, is a platform that gives creative people and teams a space to truly connect 
and do work collaboration, right? And I absolutely, I'm a fan. <laughs> and Apple featured you guys as the UK's, one of the UK's hottest apps. Uh, Forbes said that you're the next LinkedIn. Why do you feel that LinkedIn was not serving the creative, slashy, uh, multi-hyphenate crowd? Yeah, I mean, the reality is, is LinkedIn is is really the only professional networking solution that we all have. And it, it was totally built around a very traditional, linear, CV, individualistic way of work. And it's a white-collar platform. It is designed for white-collar working. And everyone I was surrounded with were working in a very different way. You know, people were increasingly taking, adopting more fluid-based careers, so full-times, but they had side hustles. They were starting to freelance. It was a much more fluid way of work. What I was also finding is that things were much more collaborative. And LinkedIn's quite an individualistic experience. It's like, this is me and me, this is what I do. And actually, all the great projects and all the great creations that I knew that were happening was a, a collection of teams that brought that project to life. So the big difference between us and LinkedIn is on LinkedIn, you promote yourself via a CV and on the dots, you post projects and then credit the full team around that project. So it can be an app. And this is the UI designer, UX designer, front end engineer, back end engineer, head of growth, etc. Or it could be the show and it will be like the two of us credited in it. And it's sort of a recognition that Creativity is a team sport and everyone is creative. So our definition of creativity is very, very, very broad. But I guess what I was passionate about and what I get really frustrated with LinkedIn, it just feels like a just a it's a social media site where you just show off. Like what actual benefit are you getting from it? So everything we leaned into was practical help for helping people navigate, I guess, the future of work. So um, we help them connect with events and learning opportunities, but a lot of skill swaps that happen across and the site. So, for example, in COVID, obviously, everyone's having to reskill or slightly change their skill. And so we help the community that way. We help them connect with jobs, but more fluid based jobs. But I guess the beating heart of the dots is our um, ask forum where the community help each other. And it's been a bit heartbreaking to watch of late, I guess, because so many people are struggling. And But what I've, I guess I'm most proud of is we've created a very safe space for people to be very open. Um, so our algorithm is actually based on positivity and kindness. So the kinder and more helpful you are on the dots, the higher you come in search results. And so, yeah, it's a safe space where someone can go, I'm having real troubles with mental health at the moment. Could you give me advice or... I've just been made redundant. What am I going to do? Or, you know, I work in retail. Am I ever going to have a job again? So I guess everything I've tried to create is something that helps people professionally, but recognizes that, you know, personal and professional life aren't separate anymore. You know, we can be human and we can be vulnerable. And actually the power comes from people not like showing off like everyone does on LinkedIn, but actually going, I need help and I need advice. And isn't that a lovelier way to work? I love that. And I, and I love that you optimizing the, the kind of the search and the algorithms for kindness and help and support. How does it work? So did you create something on the back end that actually scores higher for, you know, the amount of help that you give to each other? Yeah. So, I mean, on a very basic level, um, anyone who asks a question that the wider community find useful, and so that's either based on engagement or likes, then that will help boost them 
in the algorithm and then the same with replies so anyone who's helpful in terms of the replies that they give and those replies have engagement and likes helps boost those people in the algorithms and then it becomes this lovely virtuous circle i mean there's lots of other things that you know work into our algorithm but that's the key differentiator once you a talent comes to a certain point it's lovely because the community know this and they're just just it's just fueled this lovely kind environment where people can um can be vulnerable and can help each other and support each other and i think interlinked to that is a lot of our platform is based on inclusivity and diversity and and i love men for anyone who's listening but 68% of our community is and we're actually at 6 700,000 members now 68% are female 31% bame 16% lgbt and we do a lot of work on socioeconomic movement and neurodiversity as well so for example our algorithm linkedin's algorithm is geared around educational background which is like totally reinforces the kind of old school networks and so we don't things like education do not feature on the dots at all and it's not in our algorithm so it means that people should be judged on what they do and how good they are not based on whether they went to oxford or stanford like that's the opposite of what i wanted to create so the kind of kindness and inclusivity is about making it also a very safe space for diverse talent because something like LinkedIn can feel very, can very homogenous and you don't really see people. It doesn't feel like it's a place for everyone. So we've tried to create the opposite. That's so interesting. And, and was this by design since the beginning? The values have, you know, the values are been ingrained since day one again I guess it's me always seeing problems in the world and world and wanting to solve them but I just something that really frustrated me with the social media landscape was the prevalence on negativity and it just doesn't feel like nice spaces and so that all those value set was right at the beginning it's definitely been an evolution um so from a diversity perspective actually when we launched the dots even though diversity was a core value we did have more men signing up than women in the early days and what I came to realize after talking to our members was that men actually find it easier to promote themselves than women do. So we actually then did some manual curation intervention where we um, made sure that everyone we featured was always over 50% female, or always over 30% BAME, and actually the demographic flicked overnight. And so, you know, it was very much a see it, be it principle. And then the algorithm followed on from that. Actually, the reason we ripped educational background um, from the site was... We had a couple of clients, I won't name who, but they are tech clients who were like, how many people from Oxford do you have on the darts? And I'm like, oh God, this is not what the platform is about. So I was like, right, that's, we don't. Wrong question. Wrong yeah, question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the, you know, the happiness and the kindness algorithm came off the back of literally just wanting, you know, the seeing, wanting the forum to be a positive space and just building on that positivity and wanting to reward the people that were helping other people and then sort of it, it, it snowballed from there so it's kind of it's kind of magic building a community that actually cares about each other you know what i what i love about this is that it shows that when you have the right values in place and you you intentional about the intervention of changing you know diversity and creating inclusion in any platform that can happen right it is possible. It's just a matter of setting your intention and, you know, going to executing that. 
And so many times, uh, a lot of companies don't take the resp responsibility because they're like, well, we're just a platform, right? People use the way that they want. But then to your point, like men tend to be more self-promoters. And so you have to balance it out with the technology that you're creating. And it's very hard to change later down, you know. I mean, we work with so many companies. I mean, it was companies that use us to hire and they actually have great intentions to change but the challenge is, is values get ingrained quite early on in a business. And so I'm, I was very lucky that I, I had the luxury of having that from the get go. And I, it really just, it came out of my own personal experiences. You know, I'm, I'm dyslexic. I'm very open about my dyslexia, but I have obviously struggled with my dyslexia. And I just wanted to create a space where I felt that it was inclusive for me. And I just never really felt that with something like LinkedIn. It, it just didn't feel like a safe space for me to be me. Yeah, no, that, that's such a good observation, right? And I'm going to touch on, on, on the, the obstacles of, uh, of dyslexia a little bit later. I recognize that and I, that's why I love the dots so much. I am a multi-hyphenate myself and I find that, you know, there's all of these things the society wants to kind of pigeonhole me in, in one, one place. And I, and I know that a lot of our listeners feel the same, right? And I was the other day on Clubhouse uh, listening to a panel made of of early 20s women and they were talking about that the difference the way that they live life and careers versus the millennials and gen x and etc and boomers right and i thought it was really interesting that i felt there was this generational shift that they were talking about how much they're curious of uh, how do they how are they going to monetize their hobbies and I remember I never thought about that when I was my, on my early 20s. Like, you know, I was the, the work and life were kind of different lives, you know, for myself. I, I'm wondering how do you see the future of work with the new generations kind of being purposely saying, I'm going to blend everything that I do and I monetize and the ikigai and et cetera. How do you see, do you see this shift very strongly happening? I mean, that is our community. They are the slashy generation. They're the ones that are following their heart and purpose. And, you know, it's it's not always easy. I mean, things have shifted of late because obviously freelancing, which was just a wonderful way to sort of supplement your income on with passion points, has dried up quite a bit. But what I love to... What I feel that this generation do is they value other things than just pay. Like, pay is fundamentally important but so is actually enjoying the work you do but I think it's also that things are moving so fast they're having to adapt to change and starting to enjoy continuous learning and sharing and skill swapping and jumping from project to project and it just feels like a much more I guess fluid way and that if you can see it, you can be it. And, you know, a huge part of our community is people finding collaborators, working on projects together, spinning up multiple projects, asking for business advice, like, how do I make money from this? And, but what I love is it's just the kind of, you, you can be this sort of, I guess, slashy nomads. You can be passionate about something and try and make money for it. I mean, you know, sometimes you have to supplement your in income with some other things that you do. Sometimes you have to live on a houseboat. <laughs> so, you're, so your overheads aren't as high. People are just being a lot more kind of fluid in the way of their approach 
of making money. You know, we've seen over the last few years of running the dots, I've seen a massive rise of, you know, advertising agencies, a big part of um, the industries that we look after or one of the industries we look after. And it's been interesting to see sort of the demise of the advertising industry and the rise of the content creator, you know, um, and how brands are now going straight to the content creators themselves. And it's just that wonderful disintermediation that you're starting to see. And another huge thing we're seeing is a big rise of collectives, you know, people coming together to work on projects and more on a fluid basis. So what would traditionally happen in an organization in a quite structured environment, people are actually instead, you know, working in a collective. So they might be working in a kind of tech collective and making products, but they're pulling in people from in their collective to have the expertise to work on that project. And I get really excited about that as a principle. It does have its drawbacks. You know, we experienced them firsthand when lockdown happened. You know, it was it was people who had more flexible working that were the ones that were impacted first. But out of their mindset comes a, a let's find ways to get through this mindset as well. So it's... Um, it's actually they're the ones that I also feel a bit on the dots are the more resilient ones because they're like, okay, well, we're slashies, so we can't do that anymore. But how about we just do that instead? And that's quite nice, the zigzaggy, squiggly career type type behavior that we're seeing. That's so cool. And and hopefully that's contagious for, for all the next generations to come, right? So do you think that the pandemic kind of provoked such a change that it's broader than the slashies, you know, uh, generation, but it's getting to, you know, why the workplace and because, you know, we see each other's home all the time and living, you know, together in our homes, are we becoming more kind of vulnerable and, and okay to show our flaws as humans? Do you think that uh, this is happening or this is kind of even required to happen for you to be a good leader in the, in the post-pandemic world? Yeah, I mean, 100%. I mean, everything's changed. And I don't think it will ever go back, um, no matter what Goldman Sachs says. You know, in the end, everyone's seen each other's homes, and everyone's had to be human. And I think as leaders, we've all had to put empathy first, and caring for our teams first. And yeah, I mean, it's just been this amazing time where you've got mothers and parents and fathers having to homeschool and the kids running into the screens and everyone's been in the same boat. And I think what's lovely is we have worked out that this is possible. We can, for example, have flexible working. We can have remote working. You know, mums and dads can, you know, take parental responsibility. Dads can be home and look after the kids too. Wow, we all suddenly, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. I feel like this is the time where everyone's got real. And also it's the time where I think everyone's grown a bit of empathy, but again, I'm a massive optimist. Like we've definitely seen it on the dots where people that are in more privileged position have really gone above and beyond to give back. So for example, we signed up this kind of army of mentors when when there were too many heartbreaking asks or questions hitting the dots we signed up this army of senior mentors who help answer those questions and just been lovely watching people just want to want to help if they can and i think yeah it's now it's more human it's more kind i just hope we stay like that 
I know that's exactly what I want. I'm so I'm so afraid of yeah, kind of the world taking over again. Out you know, getting us distracted from the humanity that we have been creating. Right, I agree with you. So let's talk about yeah, adversity, right? So you and and you as a leader, many high achievers and successful entrepreneurs have dyslexia, and we we touched upon that a little bit uh, in, in the beginning, right? So including Walt Disney, Richard Branson, Steven Spielberg. What do you think is the link between dyslexia and being able to overcome big obstacles and become great entrepreneurs and leaders? Yeah, I mean it's so interesting because like I was diagnosed very young but I didn't actually think about like I, I knew my dyslexia was challenges but I didn't really think about the benefits until more recently where actually because on my email signature it says delightfully dyslexic excuse typos and so someone asked me to do a talk on dyslexia and I was like I better like learn about my dyslexia a bit more and what I realized is 35% of entrepreneurs are dyslexic and 40% of self-made millionaires And then I was like, what are the patterns? Why is this the case? And the reality is, is there's our brains are wired differently. And so while there are challenges, so I see and hear the world differently. That's why my spelling and sometimes my my speech can muddle. But on the flip side, it has these amazing superpowers, right? There's a brilliant piece of research by Harvard that found that dyslexic have we have wider peripheral vision. I mean, if you think about humans are the most sophisticated robots that exist, right? We're taking in all this data all the time and we're synthesizing that into creative thought and intuition and gut feeling. Well, as a dyslexic, I just take in more data and actually that's quite a trait of neurodiversity in general. So I'm just like data overload, data overload. But with that increased amount of data going into my brain, it's easier for me to connect dots. It's easier for me to come up with creative ideas. And so that's why we highly indexed on creativity, which is obviously linked to entrepreneurship and intuition, again, linked to entrepreneurship. But I think what's really fascinating is the over-indexing on empathy for dyslexics. And they're not really sure why. Maybe it's because we're outsiders when we were young, so we're very empathetic to others. But again, that can index on being good leaders. But the perseverance one is the... There is no scientific proof of the perseverance. I mean, there's proof that we, we have higher levels of perseverance, but they don't know why. They think it's just because we've had to, we're the lucky dyslexics, right? We're the ones that were high achievers and managed to come through. And because of that, we had to work so hard, very young, that when we get older and we have to work hard, we're like, this is fine. Like when we were young, that was that was hard. This is this is easy. So it's like that whole we we know that grit determination. That's my mode of thinking, right? Yeah. That's that's literally that's normal for me. So and we know that hard work can pay off. And we know the lows are just lows for a bit and you can get through them. So that's the interesting dynamite, I guess, combination. I mean, the dynamite combination for neurodiversity is actually dyslexia, autism, and ADHD as a combo. So that's Einstein, that's Steve Jobs, that three dynamite. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> wow. I don't have that three. I wish I did. <laughs> that's fascinating. Life becomes so easy, right? When you have to overcome all of these. <laughs> that's beautiful. Um so, so you say that homogeneous teams are dangerous for creativity. And of course, you call yourself a diversity advocate and you practice that on the dots, you know, as you already, already talked about. Uh, was there like a, a particular tough situation that happened to you 
that made you become such a strong advocate? Yeah, I mean, there are lots, right? So firstly, I guess my dyslexia, and I mean, I was seven while I was diagnosed. And it's that moment where you realize you're different and you have to graph through it. And then from there, it was a whole load of series of things that happened in my life and actually even before I was born. So, for example, my grandfather was a milkman and he was desperate to work in the film industry. And he left school when he was 15 years old. He ran away from home. I don't know anything about his family because he never spoke about his family. And he tried to get into the film industry and they wouldn't have him because he had no educational background. And he had to move to Buenos Aires to get a job in film. And that's where my dad grew up. And it just made me realize we're just squandering all of this amazing talent because we've got this bias over like education, but forgetting that education is a privilege, you know, it's not everyone has access to education like some of us do. And off the back of that, the same thing happened with my my dad. So my dad really wanted to work in the music industry, um, moved back from Buenos Aires, and again, he um, he just couldn't get a job in the music industry. So he actually lied on his application onto a graduate trainee school. So he said he had a BA, which is technically sort of true because he was educated in Buenos Aires. So he wasn't completely lying. But he got onto that graduate trainee scheme. And like fast forward like 25 years and he's running that record label. And again, if my dad hadn't lied on that application, he would have never got that job and they would have squandered that gift. And... And actually, knock on to me, if my dad had never been successful, I would have never got help for my dyslexia and I wouldn't be talking to you now. And it's just all of these series of things where we've got all these biases, education, what someone looks like, how people, someone acts, you know, all of these biases that mean we're squandering just so much talent. You know, we have prejudice against people with neurodiversity. Someone's got autism. Oh, we don't want them in the All of this stuff, we're squandering gifts. And so... That's been the sort of series of my my learnings. And then more recently, when I was working for government, I was working for David Blunkett, who's a blind politician. I realized David was brilliant because of his blindness, not despite of it. The reason being is he had no bias in his decision making. So when when David was in meetings, he was literally just synthesizing the facts and not bringing in bias. And he was an amazing leader because of it. So yeah, I've just been sort of surrounded by things that have taught me had the power of of diversity but also how much we've squandered how much talent we've squandered around the way and now it's just proven right you know it's better for innovation it's better for creativity it's better for profitability I um, mean it's just crazy that we're not built I mean when I think about diversity it's about building teams that reflect society you know all its intersectionality that sexuality that's you know that's your ethnicity that's neurodiversity that's everything but we need to build teams that reflect society otherwise we're just building products for ourselves right it's just mirror image of ourselves so um yeah sorry that was a very long answer but that's <laughs> was there a moment as an entrepreneur that you felt like shite i won't achieve the success i wanted in my life um oh, i mean starting a business is like the craziest scariest journey I've ever been on and like there's times where you're like and you know what this is like you're like this is amazing this is the best thing I've ever done and then there's times where you're like what the hell am I doing with my life like I have no life you know I I work great it's yeah it's up it's down it's sideways it's tiring it's exhausting you have 
I'm, I'm, I was meant to be on holiday last, next week. It was my first holiday in 14 months. And now I've got a massive meeting I can't miss. And it just happened. You know, your life isn't your life anymore. Do you know what? I've, I've, and I've always done this with the team. I've always said we're focused on a very big outcome. You know, for us, it's been about being the professional network of the future. That's a massive, crazy vision. But I've also always said we've got to enjoy this journey. And I think what I'm sort of proud of with the team is because we're always put purpose at the heart of everything we do, if I failed tomorrow, I would be proud of what I did because I've helped so many people along the way. And that's what helps me when I do have those dark days. And we all have those dark days. That's what helps me get through because this is bigger than me. And if I fuck it up, which is, you know, always a possibility, at least I've helped a shitload of people. And so that helps me sort of sleep at night. And it also picks me up at the floor. You know, those days when you're like, why? It's sort of gone, well, I, I've, got, I've got to get up because I'm actually, it's, um, it's not, I'm not just responsible for my life anymore. I'm responsible for my team's life. But more importantly, I'm responsible for my community and that sort of, that helps me go. But there are those days. You know those days. I know those days. I know very well. <laughs> but I, I think the way that you look at that, it's such, a, it's such a beautiful way. It's just, yeah, it's bigger than me. Let's just uh, make this shit happen, right? <laughs> I love that. I love that. So, yeah, I, I love to touch on decision making because that's such a crucial thing that... I personally learned so much in 10 years of building businesses. I was not good at that at all in the beginning. And of course, it's an important skill when you're growing the business, when you're hiring, firing people, pivoting your business, raising funds, right? What are kind of key decisions that you made that you feel that were fundamentally the building blocks to get to where you are right now? Yeah, I think weirdly part and parcel of my dyslexia is that I've always actually been good at delegating because I've never been good at everything. So I was never one of those founders that was like, I can do it all because the reality is I can't and I've never been able to do it all. And so weirdly on that side, my dyslexia came into its own because they're kind of building brilliant people around me. I was very aware, acutely aware of my what I was good at and what I was bad at. And that was kind of a symptom of my dyslexia. And I've, I've been always quite introspective in that respect. Like I've, so I guess big moments for me is, you know, for example, you know, when I had my first ever 360 review done of myself, which was in my first business, it was a paper that was created by one of my investors. And it was like, what I was good at, what I was shit at, <laughs> and learnings from my last business for this business. And I actually carry that piece of paper around with me in my wallet today and it helped so much in terms of identifying where my strengths and weaknesses are and who I needed to put around myself for this so I think the best decision I've ever made is actually the people I've put around me to support me and I think in terms of I'm a very um creative instinctual leader right so I will make decisions quite easily based on what I feel is the right thing. What I've had to become very good at is putting people around me that are brilliant at data who can challenge me because they know that they can override my gut if they come to me with proof of data. And they've also learned to trust me 
a lot because a lot of my instincts are actually right. So it's kind of this, um, but I've needed to have that sense check because while I do have a strong instinct, obviously I'm not right all the time, you know. And so that's been a really core part of my decision making. I will instinctively make decisions, but I need people around me to challenge those based on facts and data. And I think what I've got also much better at is learning a lot quicker than I did in the earlier days of the business. And so we split the business into core and explore. So core is very much like our bread and butter. We know if we do this, it achieves this. The explore side is we have no idea. We've got all these great ideas. I'm very good at coming up with great ideas, but let's see if we can test a hundred of them as quickly as possible. One's going to be fucking amazing. Oh, excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Everything goes here. (laughs) No censorship. (laughs) We've got a lot better at that. And actually we've got what's great about that is it's made it more inclusive for my wider team to also have ideas, make decisions, test those ideas, validate those ideas, So it's made sort of the decisions on what we build or not build a lot easier because we just, you know, we test and ship things really quickly, but we learn if they're crap pretty quick as well. Mm. So, so what for people who are listening to us and they want to, you know, accelerate their uh, improving decision making and learnings to, to be more self-aware and to learn how to delegate, what would be your advice to them? Yeah. So In terms of self-awareness, I actually have a sticky on my Mac, which is literally every mistake I've ever made. And I I note them all down. I've got like a full list. And I don't mind making mistakes. It's it's terrifyingly long. Uh, I don't mind making mistakes, but I, I really, really hate myself when I repeat them. And so that's been a really important list for me. And also asking for feedback and I was terrible at it when I was younger. I think I was just really scared on what someone would say. But now I ask for feedback on everything. I ask for feedback on at the end of every meeting, I ask my team for feedback. I obviously ask our community for feedback on everything all the time. I also do an anonymous survey to my team that goes out to my team. And it's anonymous, so it can be brutal. Right. Have you have you had a brutal one? Like one that you're like, oh my God, that's going to be on the top of my mistake list. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's things where you're like, really? Uh, I mean, like, you know, I've done uh, biases. Like, you know, I'm, 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 I preach inclusivity and I've, I've been called up on my bias, which I think is brilliant as well because it, ma- it puts a mirror to yourself and makes you realize that we all have biases Examples are, I definitely bias on extroverts over introverts, terrible. I actually biased a whole uh, flexible working parental policies around women and got really called up by guys. And I'm, I'm there going like, how did I do that? That's just awful. You know, like, till parents take equal responsibility, we're never going to change anything. So that's been a really... Don't get me wrong, it's really confronting. And I actually tend to read that survey on a Saturday... And it takes me about a day and a half to recover. And then I pick myself up and then I, I'm really open with the team about it. So I actually go through everything they say and talk openly about it as well. But I've learned so much about myself. This is a great practice. 
What is your typical day? So uh, Monday to, to Friday, do you allocate time for like days for meetings or what, what, is, uh, what is the typical rhythm of your days? Yeah, so um, daily stand-up, it's nine. So because we, we've moved fully remote now, actually we've got a number of the team who've actually moved remote. So I've had team members move all over Europe. We've had two go to Australia. So we do daily stand-ups at nine with Mondays, are kind of a bigger one where we go through stats and overview of the working week. And then we have on Tuesdays, we have like our big, what we call our explore sessions. And that's where we look, go through data of stuff that we've tested and work out like the next things we're going to do. My favorite time of the week is Fridays at five because we have, we do these Friday thank yous. So everyone on the team thanks someone else on the team for something they did that week. And it's, it sounds so hippy, but it's so nice. So <laughs> it feels warmy. <laughs> it's really lovely. And it's, it's tough, right? Because I can't see all the brilliant things the team do all the time. So it's, it's, for me, it's lovely because it's just way to give thanks when I'm not always able to give thanks or not you know, I'd, I wouldn't know necessarily if someone did something wonderful that week. So, so it's like, it's a really kind of hippie way. In terms of when we used to be out of lockdown, we used to have no meetings, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays. So that was like deep work. It hasn't really been needed so much in lockdown because, because you're not being dragged into meeting rooms as much. So we've been a bit more flex on that. That's very nice. What are you mostly curious about at the moment? Oh, what am I mostly curious about? I'm always obsessed with the future of work and I'm always obsessed with where things are going, more so with how can we help. I guess that's, I mean, I probably spend more time on my forum than anyone else because it's so magical getting these real world insights of what problems people are facing right now and how we can support those journeys. I'm really interested by the kind of intersection between communities and how there's kind of like a massive then between how people's communities are building these days. So our community is part of my, loads of micro communities and how those interrelate. So yeah, I'm sort of very fascinated in how you bring those Venns together in a cohesive, constructive manner. So, you know, people's lives are are not linear, right? You're part of, especially with our community, like they're all slashes, right? So they're part of, they're part of podcaster communities. They're part of freelance communities. They're passionate about DNI. They're part of, you know, environmental communities. They're, you know, they're doing extinction. They're, you know, all these kind of stuff. So I'm sort of really fascinated in how we can help empower more communities to bring about positive change through through the platform. And also, I've just become obsessed with woods since buying woods. So uh, the the wood we brought is a um, it was an ancient woodland that this in the sixties they chopped the whole wood down, which is just horrific, and just put it a commercial woodland in. And so what we're doing is uh, we're regenerating it back to the original native trees. And I've become obsessed with the worldwide wood. I don't know if you've heard of the worldwide wood. No, which I, is, I haven't heard of that. Tell me about it. <laughs> it's basically a web of fungi that exists in woodlands underground, which has been scientifically proven that trees transfer nutrients to trees that aren't doing so well. And so it's the balance of ecosystem balance and it's how it is all interlinked. And it's it basically everything I want the world to be. <laughs> 
right um, I where everyone that. helps the weak and supports people and like you know this lovely actually exists in woodlands and so so the way the fungi works is like you know if there's a tree that's struggling because of drought they'll transfer nutrients or if it's in shade they'll transfer nutrients mother trees transfer more nutrients to their children they'll even transfer nutrients to competitor trees and it's just this wonderful thing. And actually, if you knock down a tree and it's part of that web, you actually break the connection. And so I'm really fascinated by how, how have we got this so, well, we haven't got it right. Nature's got it so right. And how as humans have we fucked it so badly? <laughs> so much um, we can learn from trees, right? So like, come much. On. <laughs> so much. And, you know, they're thousands of years old. I mean, I mean, like, Now, oak trees don't even start having children until they're over 100. So I'm just really fascinated by, I'm just very fascinated by the woodland, but then the how, yeah, how that intersects with humanity. It intersects with that. I don't know. That's my dyslexia. Yeah, but when you you go into that, that, that's amazing. Total, Total lateral thinking there. You kind of, you go deep into understanding that, okay, now how do we bring this to the world, to the future of work, to the future of, of, of the world, right? I love it. Because it's like, you know, it's wonderful because there's mother hub trees and, you know, it's just how do you bring those hubs together to actually support it in a positive, kind, inclusive way? And yeah, forests are kind and in- inclusive. So, I mean, that's wonderful, right? That's wonderful. I'm not sure humans are that great. <laughs> we need to we need to get better. We need to learn. We, I think well, I think inherently humans are good. We're just we've been using the tools to bad. Our our, our, our kind of interwebs at the moment aren't so good. We need to build like the nice forest fungi interwebs yeah the fungi the soil and the connection i yeah i'm loving this i can see you applying this totally to the dots and the micro communities that you're going to be creating the future which is beautiful everything is uh, interlinked yeah and what i love about it is how competitive trees or things that aren't so great the trees still support there are these places where people exist that aren't so positive, but how can we influence it to become more of a better understanding of what everyone does? Anyway, you'll get me going crazy. My husband just thinks I'm a weirdo. Like on, on <laughs> <laughs> And you're like, yes, I am a weirdo and I don't care about that. <laughs> that's the best thing. That's the best thing. You, you become unique and original. That's, that's the way you should be, right? That's why we admire you. I admire you so much. So, and I'm sure everyone's listening to us is learning a lot from you, Pape. I'm loving this conversation. I could go like on and on and on. Do you have any, you know, last messages to give to the awesome listeners who are listening to us right now? Oh, the secret to everything is just being kind. <laughs> um, it really is true. I feel like my career has been defined by surrounding myself with brilliant, kind people that I know in my life that I have called on for support over the years. And I've, you know, I just think, I think we underestimate the power of generosity, kindness, compassion in business a lot. And actually, being a ruthless business leader is fine when your things are going well, but when things go wrong, it's the power of the community you've built around you and, and the people you've helped when they're on hard times that will help you when you're on hard times. So I think, um, 
let's bring back the kindness and compassion into our work lives would be really nice <laughs> oh that's a beautiful note to end on and i thank you so much for your time for being here with us today and i cannot wait to continue to have this conversation with you and in real life right like you know not through the screens anymore and uh yeah spend some time together thank you Thank you so much for listening so far. Make sure that you listen to other episodes. You can go to hypercurious.fm. And if you want to stay in touch, I'm around. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. You just search for my name and you're going to find me. If you love this conversation and more, make sure that you also do a five star and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts. If that's your preferred podcast app, it will mean the world to me. For now, ciao, ciao.